Our speaker today is Rabbi, is it Rabbi Doctor? Rabbi Joshua Garraway, PhD, who serves as Associate Professor of Early Christianity in the Second Commonwealth at the Hebrew Union College Institute of Religion in Los Angeles. Rabbi Garraway earned his doctorate from Yale University and was ordained at the Cincinnati campus of HUC. His first book, Paul's Gentile Jews, Neither Jew Nor Gentile, but both explores the ways in which Paul's epistle to the Romans uh, constructs Jewish identity and the role played by this construction in the ensuing emergence of Christianity. His second book, currently in progress, will offer a revisionist understanding of the origins of the Greek term, I, what is this? You, Euangelion. You on or you-ah? Euangelion. usually translated gospel in early Christianity. Rabbi Garraway is a, is a native of Rochester, New York, currently lives in Pasadena with his wife, Professor Christine Hendrickson Garraway, and their three young boys. His claim to fame, though, is if you watched the program Finding Jesus on CNN this past year, he was a featured speaker, and I am told, I have good authority, that they'll be Finding Jesus Part 2 coming out soon on Probably CNN. Around Easter, yes. Around Easter, and he will be featured in that as well. So um, uh, one thing you should know, again, it's a two-part series. Today we're going to focus on Jesus. Next Friday we're going to focus on Paul. I welcome you all if this is your first program. Do you have a question? Oh, yeah. Um, Norman thinks there's an issue, but I don't. The program next Friday is going to be up here, same time as this Friday. So it'll be 12 to 1.15. Okay? That's it. Rabbi Garraway, the microphone is all yours. We have handouts. We only have 80. So um, we have more than 80 people here today. So if you're here with someone that you'd like to share with, please do share. I don't know, take one and pass. And if you like the person next to you, you can share with that person. Uh, I'm not used to speaking in a microphone. I, I lecture to 110 kids every Monday and Wednesday, but I just yell as loud as I can. So I may do that anyway. I also move around a lot. Um, so if you have a problem hearing, just raise your hand, and I will move closer to the microphone. Um, I don't want to waste too much time with introductory matter, but I would be remiss if I did not say thank you to Ari and to everyone who's here and to whoever it was. I don't know if it was Rabbi Einstein or someone who recommended me. Um, thank you all for everything. This is a pleasure to be here, and I look forward to being here next week as well. So I'm going to try to give a presentation about the historical Jesus. And because of the season, I'm going to do my best to try to incorporate both Hanukkah and Christmas. Okay. So we're going to start with Hanukkah. Um, I apologize also for my voice. I'm at the end of a cold. I feel great, but I sound not so great. Um, so I apologize for that. Thank you. Don't look at the sheet yet. This is what undergrads do. You give them the syllabus, they start reading it, and you haven't even said anything yet. All right, don't look at the sheet yet. It'll just confuse you. What I want you to think about while it's being passed around is a question that has nothing to do with history. It is probably the most profound theological question that anyone has ever asked. And I'm not joking about that. But you're going to see that starting with that profound theological question is actually going to get us to where we need to be. So the profound theological question I want you to think about, and I'm going to take a couple of responses, is why do bad things happen to good people? 
I'm guessing you've had a scholar up here who's addressed that question before. But I want to specify it a little bit and say, according to the Torah, why do bad things happen to good people? Well, free will explains why people act, but why do then bad things sometimes happen to good people? Someone in San Bernardino the other day, great person, who knows, stop short in the prime of their life. That's a bad thing happening to a good person. According to the Torah, why does that happen if God is a just and good God? Why do bad things happen to good people according to the Torah? It's a trick question, by the way. It is a title. It's actually when bad things happen to good people. And I don't remember, remember him quoting anything from the Torah over there. Well, who's read the book of Deuteronomy and can tell me why bad things happen to good people? It's a trick question. They don't. According to the book of Deuteronomy, bad things don't happen to good people. Bad things happen to bad people. And good things happen to good people. And if you think a bad thing happened to a good person, you just don't know everything about that person. Right? Now, this today often appears in the news, and we deride that kind of theology as barbaric. If a bus crashes in Israel, say, which has happened, and the chief rabbi comes out and says, oh, it's because the parents of the children didn't have the right mezuzah, right? there's no injustice. Or when 9-11 happened and Pat Robertson said, oh, it's because there's too much pro-gay legislation in New York, so they were punished. And we deride that, right? the notion that a bad thing cannot happen to a good person if God is just. But according to the Torah, that's exactly how God's quid pro quo justice works. If you follow the commandments, it will rain. If you don't, it won't. It's really quite that simple. Now, early on in Jewish history, a number of Jews looked around and said, that ain't how it works. So if you read the book of Ecclesiastes, or you read the book of Job, you'll see Jews saying, this isn't how it works. Either that's a wrong theology, or you know what, maybe it is the right theology, but we don't, this is Ecclesiastes, we don't really understand it, so let's just get drunk and have fun. That's basically Ecclesiastes method. What happened was, over time, after Job, after Ecclesiastes, in the third century, in the second century, a number of Jews started asking that question. Why do bad things happen to good people? Not necessarily about individuals, but about the Jewish people. Why do bad things happen to the Jewish people? Now, sometimes the answer, and the, prof the prophets often say, the reason bad things happen to the Jewish people is because they're bad. But after being conquered in 586 by the Babylonians, and then by the Persians, and then by the Greeks, Jews started to ask themselves, are we that bad? that for 300 years we've been under the thumbscrews of foreign empires? Are we that bad? Aren't we pretty good? Surely some of us, most of us, are obeying God's law, and yet God is treating us historically so badly. Now, around the time of Hanukkah, this question came to a head. Why? Because there came Antiochus IV Epiphanes, the leader of the Seleucid armies, and they came into Jerusalem, and they sacked Jerusalem, and they outlawed Jewish life, and so on and so forth. Now, a number of Jews then began saying, surely this is the end of what we can tolerate as Jews. Okay. 
Now, what happened? According to our holiday of Hanukkah, the Maccabees stood up and said, we're going to solve this ourselves. And they started a war against the Greeks. And after 25 years or so, they were able to kick the Greeks out and establish their own kingdom and then turn into tyrants who were just as bad as the Greeks were before them. But that's another story. Right? That wasn't the approach of all Jews at the time. Some Jews at the time said, we don't have a shot at fixing the world and fixing God's treatment of us and trying to take up arms against a foreign regime. There's only one thing that can help us overcome the thumbscrews that we've been under, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, and that's God. And they had to come up with some kind of explanation for why Jewish history for 300 years had gone so badly. And the explanation they came up with is something that over the next two to 300 years came to be known as Jewish apocalypticism. And the answer that these people gave, why were we conquered? Why is Antiochus IV conquering us now? It's not because God doesn't care about us. It's not because God is punishing us. It's because God isn't there. Why? Because sometime long ago, God was in control of the world, meeting out justice. But something happened hundreds, thousands of years ago, who knows, where either God had decided to pull himself out of history, or God was conquered by some other supernatural demonic force, which meant that in 600, in 500, in 400, when the Babylonians were ruling and the Persians and the Greeks, where was God? God was out to lunch. So who was in charge of the world? Evil gods, evil demons. And who were their minions on earth? The evil Babylonians, the evil Persians, the evil Greeks. But according to these Jews, what was about to happen? God was about to come back. And when God came back into history, he was going to destroy all the demonic supernatural forces. And his minions on earth, righteous Jews, were going to demolish all of the other minions on earth whether it's the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, eventually the Romans. Right? Now, many of the people who expressed this kind of apocalyptic thinking did so by saying that they got dreams or visions of what was going to happen in this imminent event that was about to happen when God returned into history. And the word in Greek for dream or vision right, is apokalypsis, which is where we get the word apocalyptic. The most famous of those revelations or apocalypses is one that later came to a Christian called John, and his apocalypse, his revelation, became the last book of the New Testament. But the overwhelming majority of revelations, apocalyptic scenarios about the end of the world in the period that we're talking about with the historical Jesus came from Jews. It was Jews who came up with this way of thinking that the world was going to end imminently by God coming back into it and changing everything about the world as we know it. And it all started, I would suggest to you, as a result of Antiochus IV Epiphanes. And you can see an example of that in a book called the Book of Daniel, which is in the Hebrew Bible, which was written at the very moment when Antiochus IV Epiphanes was moving down from the Seleucid Empire through the land of Israel, Jerusalem, and into Egypt. This was 167 BCE. 
164 BCE is Judah Maccabee frees the temple and so on and so forth. But three years before that, some Jews weren't all that confident that human forces would be able to top, topple Antiochus IV. And they predicted that be, this is the last sign of the injustice that Jews will endure in the world. Because any minute now, and they're actually going to give you an exact time, God's coming back. And God's going to come back with his army of angels, and he's going to slaughter the Seleucids and everyone else, and Jews are going to be back on top. If you don't believe me, look at the first paragraph here, which comes from the end of Daniel chapter 11 and the beginning of Daniel chapter 12. Daniel is having an apocalypsis. He's having a vision about what's going to happen in the future. And he says, the king shall do according to his will. Who is the king? The evil Antiochus IV. And he shall exalt himself. And he shall magnify himself above every god and shall speak strange things against the god of gods. And he shall prosper till the indignation be accomplished. For that which is determined shall be done. In other words, it's 167. Antiochus Epiphanes has taken over Israel and is putting the thumbscrews down on us. But it's all about to end soon. Why? Because just when Antiochus reaches the summit of his power, at that time shall the angel Michael stand up, the great prince who stands for the children of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble, such as never was since there was a nation even to that same time. And at that time your people shall be delivered, every one that shall be found written in the book, presumably good people. And many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to the reproaches and everlasting abhorrence. And they that are wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament, and they that turn the many to righteousness as the stars forever and ever. In other words, what's about to happen? God and his army of angels is about to come back and topple the Greeks and topple everyone else. And there's going to be a resurrection from the dead and good people are going to get to live forever and bad people are going to be sent somewhere bad forever. And the whole world as we know it is going to be fixed because God is coming back. And when's it going to happen? Then I, Daniel, looked and behold, there stood two, one on the bank of the river on this side and the other on the bank on the river on that side. And one said to the man clothed in linen who, was, excuse me, linen who was above the water of the river, How long shall it be to the end of the wonders? And I heard the man clothed in linen who was, often, who, excuse me, who was above the waters of the river when he lifted up his right hand and his left hand unto heaven and swore by him that lives forever that it shall be a time, times, and a half, which is three and a half years. And when they have made an end of breaking in pieces the power of the holy people, all these things shall be finished. So according to the author of Daniel, it's going to be three and a half years. In three and a half years, the world as we know it will end. And Jews will again have their own land. And it will be run according to the laws of the Torah. And all the enemies will be toppled. And the good who have died will be resurrected. And the bad will be eternally punished. Now that didn't happen. What did happen three and a half years later? Judah Maccabee won a war. The Maccabean century began. 
Did things end after that? No. Then you had the Roman period, and then you had the rabbinic period, and then you have the Christian and Muslim period. All the way down to modernity, the world is still not ended. And we laugh now in the news when we hear some Christian preacher saying, oh, the world's going to end next year or the year after. Well, all of that kind of thinking began with Jews in the Second Temple period, and Daniel is one of the early examples. Now, why am I telling you that? Because I'm going to suggest to you that the best way to understand who Jesus was and what Jesus was about was as an apocalyptic Jew of the first century. Antiochus IV being defeated by the Hasmoneans was not the end of Jewish oppression in the Second Temple period. In the year 63 BCE, Pompey toppled Jerusalem and the Roman period began. And the Roman period for Jews was awful in 60, 50, 40, around the turn of the century, eventually culminating in the destruction of the temple in 70, and it didn't get any better after that. And I'm going to suggest to you there were countless Jews in the early Roman period, Jesus among them, who said, God has been absent, but God is coming back post-haste. Next week, the week after, tomorrow, I don't know when, but it's going to happen very soon, and when he does, There are no kids here, right? They're all outside. The shit is going to hit the fan like you can't possibly imagine. Everything as we know it's going to be toppled. The world, the political regimes as we know is going to be toppled. And he was predicting that that would happen. Okay. Why do I say that? Well, because I believe it best makes sense of the very limited amount of evidence about Jesus as he really was that we can determine based on ancient sources. Now, I hope you're asking, well, what are the ancient sources that we use to try to figure out who Jesus was? Well, to make a very long lecture short, among all the possible sources, there are really only four that are of any help. And they happen to be the four canonical gospels of the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Luke, and the Gospel of John. So you're saying, great, the first four books of the New Testament, that's like 100 pages. That's a lot of information about Jesus. Unfortunately, there's a problem with the Gospels, a problem with the Gospels for a historian, which is that we cannot read the Gospels as though they are a transparent window into the life and times of Jesus. Now, it would take me a year to explain to you all of the different nuances of why that is. But I'm going to try to make it simple, and I'm going to try to make it simple by talking about not Hanukkah, but Christmas. Christmas is the holiday on which Christians celebrate the birth of Jesus. Tell me a little something about how Jesus was born. Who knows the story? Who's seen Charlie Brown or read Luke or Matthew? What happened? He was born in a manger, according to Luke. According to the Gospel of Matthew, was he born in a manger? No. Who was at the birth? Shepherds, according to Luke. Not according to Matthew. According to Matthew, who was there? Three wise men bearing gifts, and so on and so forth. Herod the Great was massacring all the little Jewish boys, right? According to Matthew, not according to Luke. What does the Gospel of John have to say about the birth of Jesus? Nothing. 
There's no mention of a birth whatsoever. Jesus just appears in the prime of his life, right, working his ministry. What about the Gospel of Mark? Is there a birth narrative? No. So if you wanted to tackle, say, an issue like the birth of Jesus, you have Matthew, which tells one story, Luke, which tells a totally different story. Now, if you go watch a nativity scene, what do you see? Or you go, I don't know if they have them around here. Christmas decorations in California is one of those bizarre things um, coming from a place where it snows from September to May. Um, in any case, you see a nativity scene. Well, there's wise men and angels, right? You just mix all the stories together, right, from Luke and Matthew. But Luke tells one story that's totally different from Matthew's. And I would suggest to you the stories are totally different, not because they have a different account of what might have happened, but because they have a totally different ish interest in shaping Jesus in a certain way. So Matthew has the story of Jesus being born under duress, and he's somehow saved. And then he escapes to Egypt, and he comes back, which sounds a lot like the birth of Moses. Guess what else is only in the Gospel of Matthew? The Sermon on the Mount. A guy goes up on a top of a mountain and talks about law? Moses. In other words, Matthew has the idea that his Jesus of Nazareth is a second Moses. So he shapes Jesus' birth and Jesus' teaching and a whole variety of other things to make him look like Moses. Luke has his own interests. John has his own interests. John thinks of Jesus not as a man at all but as a God who comes down temporarily and bestrides the earth and then goes back. So can John even conceive of a birth narrative? No, neither can Mark. Why? Because for Mark, Jesus is just a regular old man who at the age of 30 or so is baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan River and God comes down and says, ah, I'm making you my son. So could he have had some remarkable birth like is narrated in Matthew or Luke? No, he wasn't really remarkable until he was adopted at the baptism. The point I'm trying to make is that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all tell dramatically different stories about Jesus. So if we read one as a transparent window into Jesus's life, we have to somehow explain how the other three say something totally different. So as a historian, we're in big trouble. What do you do if you're trying to narrate, I don't know, the Cuban Missile Crisis? And you have four documents explaining what happened, which contradict one another up and down the line. Well, as a historian, you have a problem. So what, as historians, have we done in the last 100 years to try to circumvent that problem and figure out what we can say about Jesus as he truly was? That's the way the Germans put it. German scholarship was the predominant scholarship in this field for 100 years or so. Incidentally, I want to make a point. If you ask me, I'm just going to preach heresy now for a second. You can have me talk about the Torah sometime if you want. <laughs> Moses is not a historical figure. Abraham is not a historical figure. I'm not here to suggest to you that somehow the Gospels present a non-historical picture of Jesus, but the Torah is historically true. I would suggest to you that none of it is historically true from the perspective of a historian. Okay, I just want to get that out of the way. Now, you could disagree with me. You can think I'm a heretic. That's fine. But the last thing I want you to come away with is, oh, he showed us how the Gospels are not historical. 
Um, yes, I believe that, but I don't think the Torah or much of the Tanakh is any more historical. So what do we do with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John if we want to find out information about Jesus? Well, as historians, we apply criteria of authenticity to the documents. In other words, we try to say, let's look at the information from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which can't all have been just made up. It's not as though the gospel authors just sat down and said, yeah, there's this Jesus guy. Let's just make up a story. Surely they were working with eyewitness testimony. They said, oh, you knew Jesus. Tell me some things he said. Or they had other things that were written. Ah, here's a little story about how Jesus died. Right? Or it may be that the gospel writers, I doubt it, but it may be they actually knew Jesus himself and had heard him say things or saw him do things. Well, the problem is if all four gospel writers had done that, their accounts would not disagree with one another. But they do, which suggests that whatever historical kernels are there, they've been manipulated and aggrandized and changed. So as a historian, we need to try to cut through that to get to the bottom. What's the real historical information beneath it? So what historians have done in the last couple of generations is come up with a series of criteria that can be applied to the gospel narratives to try to yield nuggets of historical truth about this figure Jesus. So what are those criteria? Well, some of them are obvious. Some of them, I think, are a little counterintuitive. The first one is called the criterion of multiple attestation. What does that mean? Well, if Mark says that Jesus said something, and John says it, and Matthew says it, and Luke says it, and they have Jesus saying it in a parable, in a prayer, in a, an, an editorial introduction, and Paul says it, and we can find other sources within the Gospels themselves where it seems like Jesus says it, chances are Jesus said it. If that many different multiple sources say Jesus said something, the best explanation is probably that that's something Jesus said. So I would suggest to you that if we apply the criterion of multiple attestation to the Gospels, you will find, for example, and this is the second little section on your sheet, that Jesus preached about a kingdom of God. Whatever Jesus was, he was a guy who said, there is a kingdom of God on the horizon. He says it in so many different places, in so many different ways, that it's impossible to think that Jesus never said anything about a kingdom of God. So, ah, we got a nugget. What other kind of a nugget can we get? How about Jesus' prohibition of divorce? Jesus is said in many different places, in many different ways, to have prohibit, prohibited divorce. So, I think the best explanation is that Jesus, whatever he was, preached about an imminent kingdom of God and forbade divorce. What's another criterion? Another criterion is what's called the criterion of dissimilarity. Well, what does that mean? Well, we can assume that if someone was making something up about Jesus, let's say a gospel writer says, you know what? I'm not sure what Jesus said on this occasion. Let's make something up. Well, if you were going to create something and attribute it to Jesus, chances are it would either sound like something that a Jew around the year 30 would have said or what a Christian around the year 90 or whenever the Gospels were written would have thought. But what if Jesus is reported to say something that isn't something any Jew around the year 30 would have said and isn't something any Christian around the year 90 would have said? 
If it's dissimilar to both, well, chances are no one made it up. Chances are the reason it's there is because Jesus actually said it. Right? So, for example, Jesus is said to have prohibited oaths. Did Jews prohibit oaths? No, there's a whole section in the Talmud on oaths. Did Jesus, excuse me, did early Christians prohibit oaths? No. So where would this have come from? Well, probably Jesus said, don't take oaths. Jesus rejected the idea of fasting. Do Jews reject the idea of fasting? Of course not. Did early Christians reject fasting? By and large, no. So chances are Jesus said, don't fast to try to be pious. Don't do it. My disciples, we don't fast. Everyone else fasts. I think he actually said that. And again, the prohibition on divorce. Did early Jews believe in divorce? Yes. Did early Christians believe in divorce? Yes, they didn't want to. Paul says, oh my God, I'd really like to have divorce, but I can't have divorce because I have this thing from Jesus that says we can't have divorce, right? So it's dissimilar to what early Christians want and what early Jews believed. It's probably historical. The problem with the criterion of dissimilarity, as you can imagine, is what if 100 years from now, someone is writing a biography of Ari? And they say, huh, well, a bestseller. <laughs> say, well, we don't know what Ari, I don't know, ate for lunch every day. Well, we know what your average Orange County Jew ate in 2015, and we know what we like to eat in the year 2015, right? So we attribute it to him. So, but if we have this thing that says Ari used to eat for lunch something that nobody in 2015 ate, and nobody in 2115 eats, what's that going to make Ari look like? A weirdo. In other words, if you apply the criterion of, of dissimilarity, all you get are the nuggets of truth that make the person idiosyncratic. In other words, the chances are 99% of what Jesus said and did resembled what a Jew of the time would do or what a later Christian were doing because they had gotten it from Jesus. Right? So the things that are bizarre to both just emphasize a very bizarre idiosyncratic Jesus. So you have to be very careful with the criterion of dissimilarity. Third, and it actually leads into the fourth, the criterion of embarrassment. <clears throat> this is a macabre example, but it works well. And it applies to a famous court case in the mid-90s in Orange County in Los Angeles. Imagine you're on, this is O.J. Simpson, imagine you're on trial, a man is on trial for murdering his wife. And the prosecutor asks him, did you ever beat your wife? And he says, yes. Do we believe him? This is actually a Talmudic principle. Do we believe him? Yes. yes. Why? Well, he's a, he's a murderer on trial. We're not going to believe everything he says. Why do we believe that? More so, if he said no, why would we not believe him? Why do we believe him if he says yes? He has no interest in saying yes. By saying yes, he's giving the prosecutor all the, uh, uh, the fuel he needs to then make the next step to say, well, if he beat her, he probably killed her. Right? I realize that's a disturbing example, but it's a great example of the idea that if something testifies to something embarrassing, then we tend to believe that it's true. The... I only know it in Talmud, something like that. It's, it's a Talmudic principle that says, 
it, by the way, most of the Talmudic examples and the reason I didn't give it you have to do with girls who have, on their marriage night, they don't think they're virgins. And then the next day, they come out and say, oh, I was raped when I was three. They come up with some kind of explanation, and oftentimes this principle applies. If the woman says something that would be embarrassing to her to account for her non, or not, but not betraying the tokens of virginity, or however you want to put it in kind English, um, if she says something that's embarrassing to her, we accept her testimony. Um, so anyway, what might the gospel say about Jesus that would be embarrassing that we would therefore accept? Well, one of the early scenes in the gospels is that Jesus, who's kind of a nobody yet, goes to meet a fellow called John the Baptist who's standing in the Jordan River saying, God is about to come back. God is about to judge the world. You're all in deep trouble. Come with me. I'll dunk you in the Jordan. And when you come up, you will symbolically be freed of your sin and you will then act in a righteous way. And when God comes back post-haste, you're going to be okay. And Jesus goes to this John the Baptist and gets baptized. Why might that be embarrassing to Christians in 80, 90, 100, or even 2015? Why would Jesus be subordinated to John the Baptist? It suggests also that maybe Jesus was in need of a baptism. And I can tell you that the Gospels go to great lengths to try to apologize for this historical event. If you read the one, one, one account of it says, oh, John the Baptist said, you need to be baptized? You don't need to be baptized. You should be baptizing me. But nevertheless, I'm going to baptize you. Right? It sounds like the gospel writer saying, man, how the hell was Jesus baptized by John the Baptist? It doesn't make any sense. But it's true. So we've got to put it in here and somehow apologize for it. So by the criterion of embarrassment, most scholars would say, yeah, Jesus' career started as a disciple of John the Baptist, and he was baptized by him. What's another example? In Mark 13, 32, a passage I think we're going to look at on the back page, Jesus says, you know what? The end of the world is about to come. I don't know when. He says, yeah, it could come any time, but I don't, I mean, only God knows when it's going to happen. Well, many people have said, well, that's kind of embarrassing for Jesus to admit that he knows the end of the world is about to happen, that he's some integral figure in it happening, but he doesn't really know when that's going to actually transpire. People have said, well, that's embarrassing. It's probably only included because it's historical. Another example. And by the way, this is another example you could use for showing how the Gospels differ across the line. What are Jesus' last words? Yes. Well, so in, in Hebrew, it's Eli, Eli, lama salachtani, but that's, uh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's only in Matthew and Mark. In Luke, what are the last words? Father, into my hands I commit, I commit my spirit. What are his last words in John? It is finished. Now, oftentimes, when in Christian context they present Jesus' last words, they present them one after another. But in each of the Gospels, there's different words that Jesus chooses to end his life with. But in Matthew and Mark, Eli, Eli, or Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
Now, I agree. That's something that a Jewish person who's being crucified in Jerusalem might say. What the hell's going on here? But that isn't something you would say if you knew and understood that you were supposed to be crucified for some particular purpose. If you knew this was supposed to happen, that it was a part of God's plan, you wouldn't say, God, my God, why are you forsaking me? So many people have said, ah, that's an example of an embarrassing aspect of the Gospels, which therefore has greater likelihood of being historical. And this leads to the last of the criteria. Because the last of the criteria is really just the criterion of embarrassment on steroids. What is the single most embarrassing thing that Christians had to deal with starting in the year 31 and up to the present day when it comes to Jesus? He was crucified. This powerful figure, right? this figure who was proclaimed by some as a Messiah, was nailed to a cross and died ignominiously as a traitor to the Roman state. That's embarrassing, why? Because no Jews expected that some kind of messianic savior was going to end up on a cross. It's doubly embarrassing because the last thing you wanna do as Christians in the 40s and 50s and 60s is walk around the Roman Empire saying, yes, we worship as the son of God, a man that you found to be an enemy of the state and therefore put up on a cross. How you doing? That's insane, right? It's totally embarrassing. People have argued that the first 200 years of Christianity is all an apology for the cross, trying to explain and understand why this figure had been crucified. An apology for the cross suggests that the cross, as the single most embarrassing aspect of early Christianity, is the single most undeniable thing about Jesus. And I would suggest to you that that's true. If I'm 98 or 99% sure of some of these other things, I am 100% certain, and this is the only thing I'm 100% certain about, that Jesus of Nazareth died on a cross outside of Jerusalem around Passover in something like the year 30. Okay. So these are the criterion. Now, what do the criterion do? The criteria allow us to come up with certain nuggets that we can say with confidence we believe about the historical Jesus. So what I've done is made a very long process somewhat easy for you, and I've listed at the bottom of the first page what I think most scholars of the historical Jesus, having applied the criteria to the Gospels, would say are historically true about Jesus of Nazareth. So, the cross. I don't think any legitimate Jesus scholar would deny that Jesus was crucified, probably as king of the Jews, in Jerusalem under Pontius Pilate. That Jesus was arrested following a commotion at the temple in Jerusalem. That Jesus was baptized into the ministry of John the Baptist, and that's how his ministry began. That the central message of his ministry was the kingdom of God. That he performed healings, exorcisms, and wonders. Now, if you're upset, I'm not suggesting he performed healings, exorcisms, and one, or wonders in a supernatural way. I'm suggesting to you he performed these things in the same way that countless other people at that time performed healings, exorcisms, and wonders. There's a whole rogues gallery of Jews at the time who could make it rain, who could exercise demons, who could perform all kinds of healings. In a pre-natural, in a pre-Cartesian world, 
people's understanding of healing and miracles and exorcism was dramatically different from our own. So I'm not telling you Jesus, the historical person, had supernatural powers. I'm saying he had the kinds of abilities in crowds that many other wonder workers and healers had at the time. And lastly, I apologize, this got put on the top of the second page. I'm just going to say, it's my wife's fault. I sent this to her. I said, <laughs> print it out and make 80 copies. And somehow, this, were, this got on the second page. Don't tell her I said that. I thanked her for making the copies for me, even though it was done almost right. So Jesus commingled with outcasts and sinners. That, I think, is indisputable. Sinners, tax collectors, lepers, prostitutes, the downtrodden of society. Those are the people with whom Jesus commingled, and that was considered somewhat controversial. So I could just stop now and say, look, I've given you the, here, there are the six facts about Jesus you need to know. Well, see you later. But that's not what a good historian does. What a good historian does is take those nuggets of historical truth and try to come up with some kind of explanatory paradigm. Well, given all of these things about Jesus, what kind of purpose did he have? What kind of ministry was it? What was his overall goal? What paradigm in history do we have to explain why all of these different historical nuggets make sense? Let me give you two possibilities. The first one I'm going to dismiss. I'm actually going to give you three, because Ari suggested a third that I think is worth mentioning. Some people have said the best way to make sense of Jesus has to do with the cross. See, there's one major way in the Roman Empire you get yourself put up on a cross. If you take up arms against Rome, you end up on a cross. You've all seen Spartacus, I assume, the original one, Kurt Russell. You take up arms against Rome. Uh, Kurt Douglas, yeah. Kurt Russell's the one that married Golden Hot. Okay, yeah, I apologize for that. Um, I actually just, I'll waste 15 seconds. I was reading the USA Today, as I want to do to satisfy my news needs. Um, I was flying on a Friday, and it was free on the airplane. Um, apparently, there's a new movie that's coming out about uh, the making of Spartacus and his role in um, of getting someone off of a blacklist or something. I don't really know. I only see animated movies. I, I just, unless I'm reading about them in the USA Today. Okay. Taking up arms and states. So you might know that Riza Aslan, who got quite famous in the last couple of years for rehashing a 1960s thesis that said Jesus was the leader of a small militia group that said, we're going to take over the Roman Empire. We are going to get, well, not take over their empire, but we're going to cast these people out of the Holy Land and take back Jerusalem for ourselves. Right? And they took up arms, and they did their best to try to do that. Well, there are some things that suggest that might be true. For example, Jesus ended up on a cross. The devastating critique of that thesis, which has been around for 50 years, is again, you've seen Spartacus. When Spartacus's movement fails, does Spartacus end up on a cross? Yes. Who else ends up on a cross? Everyone else that was a part of it. When Jesus died on a cross, did Peter end up on a cross? Did John up end a cross? Was Andrew on a cross? Years later, they were going around preaching, yeah, Jesus, this guy was actually the son of God. 
Did they put them on a cross? Well, eventually, but it took years and years and years, and they were frustrated with some other message they were preaching, which I'll talk about next Friday. But they didn't round up Jesus' followers, which suggests that they didn't see him as a legitimate military threat or his movement as a legitimate military threat. So that's option one. I don't think it's right. Other people have said, and this is sort of the liberal Christian approach, is that Jesus was what I call Bobby Kennedy Jesus. And I can actually say that here, and you know what I'm talking about. I speak to 20-year-olds. They think Bobby Kennedy is you know, one of the 20-year-old Kennedys now that's marrying Taylor Swift or whatever. I don't know. Um, yeah, I actually had a class at USC, and one of my students was this guy named Patrick Shriver Schwarzenegger. He was a really nice kid, and one day I'm at Vons, and I'm passing by the newsstand at the checkout counter, and there's a picture of him because he broke up Taylor Swift's relationship or whatever. In any case, you know who Bobby Kennedy is. Okay, so why did Jesus hang out with uh, 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 sinners and outcasts? Well, because he was trying to produce a kingdom of God in this world. In other words, he wanted to reform Judaism and make it more uh, compassionate and more accepting of the poor and the sinners and the Pharisees and the tax collectors. Right? He was trying to create a world of economic justice. He was trying to create a peaceful, compassionate world that would be a kingdom of God on earth, so to speak. And there's something to be said for that. The devastating critique, I would say, that applies to that thesis is the cross. Where the cross succeeds in supporting Risa Aslan's theory, it's what destroys the theory of a liberal Bobby Kennedy Jesus. Why? Because why would the Roman Empire care if a Jew was walking around in the Galilee saying, be nice to one another. If someone hits you, turn the other cheek. If someone asks you for money, give it to them. Maybe at some point he said, should you pay taxes? Well, maybe, which is kind of the answer he gives. If that bothered the Romans, which I don't think it would have, if it bothered the Romans, they had a way for dealing, of dealing with people they didn't like. They'd take you out back and stick a spear in your heart or chop your head off or just beat the snot out of you. They didn't crucify you. Many Jews have this idea that the Romans were just willy-nilly throwing people up on cross because they were bloodthirsty, horrible people. No, they were America 2,000 years ago. It's a hard thing for people to understand. I have a whole lecture about how the American empire of the 20th century is not that different from the Roman empire 20 centuries before in terms of its desire for world order and, and so on and so forth. But we like to think of the Romans as these horrible people that threw people up on crosses willy-nilly. No, crucifixion was reserved for crimes against the state, crimes that were deemed to be traitorous, challenging the authority of Roman rule. Which is why I would suggest, if you turn over the back page, that those historical Jesus scholars who have best explained who Jesus was, and I include among them, you may know the names, Bart Ehrman, who publishes uh, a lot of popular literature on early Christianity, or Paula Fredrickson, who appears on TV a lot, or Ed Sanders, who was my teacher as an undergraduate, they argue that the best way to understand Jesus is not as a Bobby Kennedy peacenik and not as an active military leader, but as an apocalyptic prophet. In other words, a person who went around proclaiming, much like the author of Daniel is, any day now, this Roman oppression is going to end. And the world as you know it is going to be dramatically different. Now, the $64,000 question is, how did Jesus understand his own role in that drama? Was he going to initiate it? Was he just announcing it? 
I don't know the answer to that question. But I do believe that Jesus was preaching imminent return of God and an imminent dramatic change in the world when God returns. Why would that have gotten, gotten him up on a cross? Because if you're going around preaching that the Roman Empire is going to end in a year, two years, six months, however, because a kingdom of God is coming to replace the kingdom of the emperor, who, by the way, was Divi Filius, the son of a god. That could be considered traitorous. That could be considered something worthy of getting you up on a cross. Now, why do I find this apocalyptic explanation the most satisfying? Give me three or four more minutes, and I'll explain to you. We're going to pass the next two paragraphs, which are just examples in Matthew and Mark of Jesus saying apocalyptic things. Are they historical? I would say yes. For those who see a Bobby Kennedy Jesus, they'd say, no, that's not historical. Jesus would never have said something like that. Why did someone want Jesus to say that? Well, we'll talk about this next week, but it's because when Jesus died on the cross, his disciples said, ah, now the end must be coming. So they attributed their own expectation of the imminent end of the world back to Jesus. I don't think that's correct. I think Jesus said things very much like this. But even more compelling, I think, are what I deem to be historical sayings of Jesus that only make sense if you're dealing with a person who thinks the world as we know it is about to end. Look at Mark 10.23. Some of these are famous lines that you've probably never thought about. I mean, you've thought about them, but maybe you haven't thought hard about them. How hard will it be for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. This is one of my favorites to bring up when I'm teaching in Beverly Hills. Um, I guess Orange County isn't that much different. But um, What is this saying here? Rich people are screwed. You're not going to get your SUV through the eye of a needle. You're done. The kingdom of God is for the poor, not the rich. That sounds like someone who thinks the end of the world as we know it is about to end, because who controls the world as we know it? The evil 1%. Okay, that, I don't actually believe that. I'm just quoting my Facebook uh, feed. Matthew 5.42, give to anyone who asks from you. Now, as someone who works at a university that requires the kindness of strangers and not necessarily the kindness of others to support everything I do, I wish everybody believed this. But this is no way to structure and organize society. You can't just give money to everybody who asks from you. But it makes sense if you think the way things are is so short-lived, it really doesn't matter. Someone wants 20 bucks, give them 20 bucks. You don't need it. The world's going to end in a few days. Look at the, not the next one, but the one after that, from Luke 14, 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. This is an odd set of family values. But it's a family values that makes sense if you think the end of the world is nigh. Because if you think the world is ending in a week or a month and everything's going to be dramatically different, then the structures that govern our lives on earth, our families and our communities, that becomes unimportant compared to your relationship to the new world that is about to emerge. So this is a very problematic teaching 
that in churches when I teach, you know, people are like, oh, yeah, we don't like to think about that line. Right? Understandably, it's a, what we call a text of terror, and we have plenty of those in Judaism. It's tough. But from a, what's that? Fair enough. Um, it makes sense in apocalyptic context. Look at the last one. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, a lot of times, if you, if you see uh, the life of Brian, right, where it's blessed are the cheesemakers, whatever. Or, no, it is blessed are the meek, and they go, oh, that's so great. They've had such a hard time of it. <laughs> such a hard time of it. Which is the way I think most people read it. Oh, isn't that nice that in the future the meek are going to be okay? It doesn't say the meek are just going to be okay. It says the meek are going to inherit the earth. That is to say, the people from South LA are going to inherit LA from the people in the hills. Right? I think it's a fairly dramatic apocalyptic statement that isn't, oh, things are going to turn out nice for those poor, poor people. No. The last are going to be first, and the first are going to be last. In other words, the world as we know it is going to be turned on its head imminently. Lastly, some of the few things I think we can say with confidence about what Jesus did sound apocalyptic. He started his career under an apocalyptic. John the Baptist was saying, God is coming imminently. The world is about to end. You need to get baptized. Well, if you start your career as an apocalyptic and you end up on a cross, that suggests to me an apocalyptic career. I have no doubt that he had an inner, an inner circle of 12 disciples. 12 disciples is not a random number in a Jewish uh, uh, venue. Right? This is probably the exp expectation that in the end, when the world is turned on its head and Jews are redeemed, the 12 tribes will be reconstituted with one disciple, presumably, at the head of each of the 12 tribes. <coughs> Excuse me. The performance of exorcisms, right? Just as God is about to come back into history and kick out all the evil demons, Jesus is in the world, kicking out the demons that are controlling the world from the inside of people. And lastly, I would suggest the crucifixion. The idea that he must have been preaching something about the imminent demise of the kingdom as it was now. Not, well, the, the empire as it was now is best uh, uh, accounted for. That best accounts for his crucifixion, better than either seeing a Bobby Kennedy Jesus or an armed uh, Jesus, which would explain why he was crucified, but not why any of his followers were not. So next week, because I was told to put in a pitch for this before I take a few questions, next week we're going to deal with the problem that this Jesus, who proclaimed that the end of the world was nigh, and presumably that he was going to be a part of that end of the world, either as the Redeemer or as its prophet, ended up on a cross. But three days later, according to many of his disciples, they realized that even though he had been crucified, he was in fact still alive. And what they had to do from that period of time forward was to try to explain if he was the Messiah, if he was a son of God, why did he have to die and be resurrected? And the answer to that question is not easy or obvious, but many of them came up with an explanation, 
Many of them disagreed with what the explanation was, and that's what we're going to talk about next week when we discuss Paul and his conflict with many of the other Christians in the first 30 years of the Christian church. I'm done. I will take questions until you tell me I have to stop. Do I call or you call? Why yeah, don't you be the... Uh... Choose some people randomly. We'll take a few questions and then we'll was break. Excuse me. Was baptism a common practice? Yes. It was. So people... You, but you, you know that baptism was a common practice. Well, Jesus. Because you've read Leviticus. Well, I, should, I don't know who you are, but you <laughs> and collective Atem, who are here, you know, you've read Leviticus. You know that any community that had a sacrificial cult usually had a purity system that involved ritual immersion as a way of... So yeah. the ritual immersion of women was part of the practice? Not just women. I, I'm sorry. Yeah. Yes. Okay, so Jesus... I'm, I'm, I was a little confused that Jesus chose to be baptized in order to prepare himself for whatever he was preparing himself for. Well, it's more that John the Baptist chose to use the ritual of baptism which was normally reserved for ritual purity for participation in the cult, but he used that as a ritual to symbolize what he saw as a moral regeneration that would qualify a person for whatever was going to happen when God returned into history imminent. Right, so he was just John then, not John the Baptist. He was named John the Baptist as when he was born, he was probably called Yohanan or something. Like that. Yes. Uh, but when you start baptizing people for several years, they say, that's John the Baptizer. I stand corrected. Yeah. Uh, yes. Um, Mark and Matthew called him the Son of Man. Who called him the Son of God? Who called Jesus the Son of God? See, Mark and Matthew called the Son of Man. It's, okay. I don't know if anybody called him the Son of Man or the Son of God. Well, it's Son of Man in these two places. Yeah, well, that, I don't know whether he said that or whether the author of Mark or Matthew is borrowing from Daniel and applying that title to Jesus. Um, I would venture to guess that no one called him the Son of God until after he was allegedly resurrected. But... By the way, this is one of the $64,000 questions. In his lifetime, did anyone call him Son of Man, Son of God, or Messiah? No. I don't know. Yes, you have to go into the timeline of these books. And they, weren't these written 50, 100 years after, 20, 60, many years after? 30 and 20 uh, Usually Mark is dated around 70, Matthew and Luke around 85, and John around 100. So none of them obviously do it. Well, the author of Mark or Matthew might have, I don't I mean, I don't know. Um, to me, that doesn't make a difference because, you know, you can write a book 30, 50, 100 years after someone's lived and include a lot of legitimate historical information about that person. Um, as a historian, our task is to try to figure out, regardless of who the author is, what that historical information is. Yeah, did in the, uh, you're convinced that Moses was not a historical figure, but you seem convinced that Jesus was. The rapid possibility is a mythology of stories about apocalyptic leaders, who the same title of Savior, Yeshua, as a way of combining the apology. I don't think it would be possible. What's the question? That, how do we know that Jesus was a historical person at all? 
Um, and I would say to you that, yes, the Gospels come a little bit later, but not that much later. And Paul is writing in the 40s and 50s and interacting with people like Peter and John and apologizing to them because they're like, you didn't know Jesus. You're nothing. And he's like, yeah, granted I didn't know Jesus, but I'm awesome for this reason. We'll talk about that next week. So the fact that Earth, you know, within 10 years of the alleged resurrection, Paul is apologizing for the fact that he didn't know Jesus personally, and that somehow uh, uh, takes away from his credentials, suggests to me, among lots of other factors, that Jesus was a historical person. Uh, yeah, I'm not going to get into the issue of Moses, but you're talking about 1,500 years. There is a proof for that in the Talmud. It's a statement in Barachot. So he was a leader in the hierarchy of the Pharisees. I would suggest to you that the Talmud offers no historical information about Yeah, but I would suggest to you the only thing the Talmud, the, the rabbis knew about Jesus or Christianity is what they heard from Christians. Exactly. They're not using some alternative data that can be used to corroborate what Christians are saying. So but that's why I don't. says, don't be a student of him. In other words, there is somebody there that yeah. is great. The best story about Jesus and the Talmud is that he had uh, eyes for the ladies. There's a great story about how, you see, the word in Aramaic for in and innkeeper is the same. So he goes with Rabbi Joshua to a, 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 a hotel. And Josh, Rabbi Joshua says, wow, this is, this is a beautiful hotel. But pervy Jesus hears, this is a beautiful hotel keeper. And what does Jesus say? Eh, her eyes are a little dim. And at that point in time, he's excommunicated. It's a great story. It's, it's complete nonsense. It's not in any way historically true. What is neat about that story, though, is that to the end of that story, Jesus comes back and he says, oh, there was a misunderstanding. But when he comes back to apologize to Rabbi Joshua, I think it's Rabbi Joshua, he's praying. He's saying the Shema or something, and he's down here. And Jesus comes to him and says, oh, I want to apologize for that comment. And what is the sage who's praying goes, you know, Shmiya, give me a minute. <laughs> and Jesus understands that to mean that he's been rejected. And so he, according to the Talmud, he then goes, takes a rock, puts it on the ground, and starts worshiping it. Mm. Right? So it's actually a very touching Talmudic story that suggests that Jesus wasn't a bad guy. He just, it was a misunderstanding. And he really wanted to be a sage, and he wanted to apologize, but this misunderstanding, boom, and history has dramatically changed one last question. Um, in light of everything you're saying, and a lot of presupposition with it, where do you go to determine how to live your life so that God will accept you at some point? Me personally? Yeah. <laughs> where do any of us? This is a very complicated question. <laughs> What's that? I mean, either there's truth or there isn't. A thing that is, is, and a thing that isn't, isn't. No, that, that I think, the simple question, I think you're right, but the simple question is, um, you say well, either the truth is, there is truth or there isn't. Well, let's make it a little bit different. Either there is a morally ordered universe or there's not. Either our entire existence and everything in it is totally random and we're on a third rock from the sun, or maybe it is that we live in a morally ordered universe that was created by 
some kind of moral conscience and so on and so forth. I accept the latter. I'm a, I'm a rabbi, a believing Jew. But to me, the much more complicated question is, how do you figure out what that, what that moral ordering of the world is? And I would suggest to you, it is not the Torah, it is not the Talmud, it is not the New Testament, it is not the Quran, it is not any book that was ever written in time that has the definitive answer for what God wants for people. So what do we do then? I would suggest, though, that people who do not accept one particular moral ordering of the world that was composed at some time in the historical past live uh, immoral lives. And so together, it seems a lot of communities are able to. I have an important question I'd like to ask, if it's OK. Well, if it's quick, otherwise ask Very me quick. Which Jesus were you talking about? Jesus, the Son of God, or Jesus, the Messiah? You didn't explain it to us. I'm talking about the figure Jesus of Nazareth, whom you can decide was either the Messiah, the Son of God, or one of many Jews who lived in Palestine in the first century. Jesus, the Baal the Son of God, or Jesus called Messiah? Which one you were talking about? The Jews saved the Son of God. Okay. <laughs> okay, well, thank you all. Can, uh, I, can I add one more thing? Sure. Shh, one last thing. Which Jesus? By the way, what is Jesus' name? It's the Greek Jesus, which is nothing other than the Greek for the Hebrew name Joshua. One additional thing. My wife, my, my wife, a wonderful lady who came to Judaism later in life, is named Christi, Christos, together. We are Jesus Christ. <laughs> Thank you all for coming, and uh, look forward to seeing you next Friday.